0: Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan. This is the detail. A big and long awaited report came out this week about climate change. It's full of numbers on carbon emissions, numbers on electric cars, numbers on gas and oil, numbers on forests, lots of numbers. We currently emit about 80 million tonnes a year of carbon dioxide equivalents. The dairy industry particularly, which is responsible for 57% of our biogenic methane. By about 7% from our 2017 levels by uh, 2030. And our target is to get a 10%
1: production. We throw out these numbers for the distant future, but very little has been done to actually get there.
0: It's a really important report, but it can be hard wading through the intellectual treacle. So today we're asking Stuff's climate change editor, Aloise Gibson, to translate it. What will these suggestions mean for ordinary people? Like, is someone going to force you to catch a bus, give up your barbecue, plant a tree? The question the report is trying to answer is, what does New Zealand have to do to meet the obligations we signed up to under the Paris Agreement with minimal impact on the economy. It was drawn up by the Climate Change Commission, so naturally the first question is who or what is that?
1: The government set this up under the Zero Carbon Act uh, which it passed in its last term it's modelled on the UK Climate Change Committee and that has been a hugely successful model for the United Kingdom so it's an independent body that makes recommendations to the government about how much carbon it can afford to emit every five years to plot a path to getting to zero carbon. So it's kind of breaking down the steps of we've got this lofty goal, net zero emissions by 2050, but how do we actually get there? What do we need to do in the next four years, say, to be at that place? In the United Kingdom, governments of both political stripes have followed these budgets. So it's been successful at taking the political swings and roundabouts of the election cycle out of the equation a little bit and giving some certainty that whatever the government of the day, they're going to meet these budgets.
0: The Commission is headed by former Deputy Reserve Bank Governor and Canterbury University Vice-Chancellor Rod Carr, and its other members include a greenhouse gas expert, a ngai tāhu kai whakahaere, a climate change adaptation expert, an emissions trading expert, a forestry expert and a farming expert. But some of the most important people in this work are the nameless, faceless policy wonks who crunched the numbers and made the projections the Commission used to base their recommendations on.
1: So projections are always uncertain, right? Um, They're making guesses about, you know, what's crude oil going to do? What's the price of EVs going to do? What's the price of renewable energy going to do? And, you know, what's the milk solid price going to be? So there's a lot built into these that's inherently uncertain, but it has to be done because you need some basis, you know, to make decisions. So, yeah, a lot of modelling, and the Commission's pretty open about saying, look – there are some wide uncertainties here and there's some things that we can't even hazard an estimate of mm. yet. Like how many jobs is the hydrogen industry going to create in 2050? You know, what's the future of biofuel and, and will that re oil and gas workers who, who aren't going to have those jobs anymore? That's all pretty uncertain at the moment.
0: You've mentioned 2050 a couple of times. Why is that date important? That's to do with the Paris Agreement, is it?
1: It is, yeah. So the the Paris Agreement, um, which is built on the, the scientific work of the IPCC, is saying that that is when all countries need to get to net zero carbon emissions. So that's the balance of the pollution we produce from cars, cows, coal, whatever, um, and the trees that we plant, sucking that back away. That balance needs to be carbon neutral by 2050 to keep the planet in this comparatively safe zone, which they're saying is between 1.5 and 2 degrees above the pre-industrial average. So um, that's what New Zealand and virtually every country in the world has signed up up to do under the Paris Agreement. Uh, The US was probably the outlier on this, Mm. and we've seen them just rejoin. So it really is a, a house with everyone in it again now.
0: So 2050 is the end date in terms of getting to net zero, but this report is largely focused on the next 15 years, is that right?
1: Yeah, so this is... The reason that everyone was waiting for this report, well, okay, if you're a climate nerd like me, you've been waiting for this report since the Climate Change Commission was made because we throw out these numbers for the distant future, but very little has been done to actually get there by successive governments. So the question is, what do you need to do now, right? So the Climate Change Commission was tasked with coming up with three budgets initially. So we've got one for the next four years ending 2025, one between then and 2030, and another one from 2030 to 2035. Now it's possible the later ones will shift a bit as things change, but we at least kind of know the ballpark of where we're heading now. The government doesn't have to adopt those budgets, they're not Binding, but there's enormous pressure to to do so. So they've set these budgets. the The government has already said it it's going to adopt them. Basically, uh, it's got the government's got till December to say yes or no to them. But mm-hmm. the direction of travel is very much a yes. Uh, and then the commission also had to show, basically, that we could do this mm. without breaking the economy. So that's where a lot of this modelling comes in.
0: Where are we at at the moment in New Zealand? Are we sort of on track to hit our emissions targets as things stand according to this report?
1: No, we are so not on track, and that won't be a surprise to anyone who's been paying attention, but it really lays it out. So I think our gross emissions have been hovering at about 80 million tonnes, which probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people, Um, but the high per capita for the world, if you take away forestry... And there's a complicated situation where they're not going to count all forestry. They're just going to count certain forestry. But without getting into the weeds of that, you count what the trees take out. We're at about 69 million now. Mm -hmm. By 2035, we need to be at 44, which sounds like, oh, it's not too bad. You know, it's not five or six. But that would represent action on a scale unlike anything we've ever done on emissions before.
0: Because we're still growing as a country.
1: That's right. They want population to be able to grow and they want the economy to be able to keep growing while this happens and that we haven't ever managed to do that before. Countries like the UK have, um, but we've been hovering around the same level for many, many years, and our our emissions have risen by about a quarter since 1990, Um, not counting forestry, just pure output. Mm. Road transport has doubled since 1990, Um, and so we're really moving in the wrong direction, if anything.
0: Let's talk a bit about the main areas the report kind of looks at in terms of making some progress here and let's begin with transport. How would you sort of articulate the attitude towards transport? I guess it's sort of the emphasis to be on all modes of transport except personal cars.
1: So... I mean, there are some people who would have liked to have seen personal cars out of it completely. Uh You know, These are the people who say EVs are a red herring. We need to get away from moving people around in big steel boxes. But the report hasn't actually done that. Actually, one of the first things it says we should do is incentivise EVs. Mm. It says we are going to get left behind. We need to be bringing up the fuel efficiency of the petrol fleet that we still have, um, the second-hand petrol cars that we're importing now, We need to be incentivising people to buy EVs now because actually once you've got one, it's cheaper. It's just that they're expensive to buy Mm -hmm. right now, which is putting people off. So until such time as they become cheaper purchase price, let's let's give people a carrot to do it. They've actually been more specific on what we should do about cars than they have on how exactly we should get things like public transport and cycling and walking up. They've kind of left that to the policy machinery of the government to figure out how to do it. So they're talking about um, doubling public transport, um, doubling cycling by 2030. It's not 100% clear how we're going to get there.
0: Local government would have a lot to do with that. Local kind of government
1: would, um, but so would you know the Ministry of Transport um, and the New Zealand Transport Agency. So... One thing that they did say that I found interesting is let's tie central government transport funding to meeting our emissions goals Mm -hmm. because there's been a real disconnect. I mean, we're still spending vastly more money on roads than we are on public transport or cycling, and it's very, very hard to get away from that while most people are still driving their cars.
0: Let's say I was thinking of going out and buying a car, and let's also say that these recommendations are broadly going to be embraced by the government. Would I be best advised, even if it is more expensive to buy an electric car because things could happen that make petrol cars considerably less appealing.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the direction of travel is very much towards EVs if you can afford it. So the people who can afford to make that choice and are motivated to make that choice I think have done the sums now Mm. and decided that it's in their financial interests. Um, We're going to have more and more renewable energy and the petrol price is going to go up by... About 30 cents a litre, the Climate Change Commission uh, estimated. That's a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, their take was, in some ways, that kind of gets swallowed by, you know, global movements and the cost of fuel Mm -hmm. that have got nothing to do with it. But if you just look at New Zealand's emissions trading scheme and where they're recommending the prices be set for that, just that alone is going to drive up um, petrol by 30 cents a litre. So, you know you straight away then think about the people who can't afford afford an EV now or in the future, and they're going to be the people who can probably least afford to pay that petrol price. They might be the people who live on the outskirts of a city where there isn't good access to other ways of getting around. And, you know, justice would say... Those are not the people that you want to be hammering <laughs> with the consequences of their own inability to afford things. So that is where the Commission said really strongly, look, we need a plan for these people. We need targeted financial support and we need to figure out who needs, who needs it and make a plan to deliver it. It's
0: interesting. Um, let's say, for example, that you... You know, you get a sweet new job as like the chief executive of a company, and historic. You know, maybe for the past like fifty years, part of that package that you get involves a really nice company car and a car park. You know, like little things like that are going to have to be kind of phased out, or or at least. Reimagined, I guess. It's really
1: interesting. you're seeing uh, companies now, now that so many companies are making their own carbon pledges, you know jumping ahead of the government in some ways, you're seeing companies now say, okay, we're not going to give you guys car parks, but we're going to have an electric vehicle sharing service. Mm-hmm. That leases what used to be our company car park and will give you so many credits a week to just take these cars out to your meetings or get where you need to go, um, make your own way to the office by public transport. Um, you know, probably some staff for whom that's still a little challenging. <laughs> um, but I think you're seeing that cultural shift already, which is quite interesting. There was someone else talking about how. Um, there's a few people who are a little, a little put out by the idea that new homes might not have natural gas connections after 2025. I mean, I'm personally a little sceptical about how many people are actually building new homes with, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I don't know how big a proportion of New Zealand is really going to be affected by that. Um, the Commission's saying, look, why are we building in fossil fuels to new housing, new infrastructure that's going to be around and 2050, which makes a certain logical sense. But there is this quite, you know, passionate reaction that some people have to, you know, but my gas hot water is so good and it's so fast and it's so plentiful. I can take
0: a shower whenever I want. I can
1: take (laughs) 50,000 showers whenever I want. And, you know, if I were hypothetically to build a new house in 2025, I'd be really put out by this. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, some of the pushback to that on social media was, you know, you're teenagers are not going to want to have 40-minute showers with gas in, in 2030 or 2040. They're going to be saying, Mum and Dad, why are we burning fossil fuels to have our shower?
0: You know? I can't believe you used to take 40-minute showers with gas. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Gross, Dad.
0: Um, let's talk about energy. It's um, a nice segue, actually. And the headline around energy, I suppose, is big emphasis on renewable energy.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things in the modelling there is that Just how much of the heavy lifting is kind of being done already by how much renewables have fallen in cost um, and will continue
0: to do so. So, we're in pretty good shape when it comes to renewable energy. New
1: Zealand's in great shape. We've got, you know, 80 plus percent of our electricity is already renewable. Uh, The problem is that we need to grow the pie Mm. because we're going to be running EVs and we're trying to switch off coal boilers as much as we can, gas burning for industrial purposes as much as we can and some of those processes that manufacturing will be able to be done with electricity not all but some and so as much of that as possible needs to go to the grid obviously all of our cars at some point in the future are going to be plugged into the grid so we need about 20% more renewable electricity Mm -hmm. I think think about 2035 was that one so we need to grow the pie And in order to do that, the Climate Change Commission is saying, don't get too hung up, government, on getting to 100% renewable energy. If the cost of getting that last few percent of, it'll be gas, coal will be gone by then, Mm -hmm. but there'll still be some gas for kind of baseload security. The cost of getting rid of that last few percent is, you know, it's going to be billions potentially, many billions. Spend that money on something
0: else. Spend it on something else. Give
1: it to people to buy EVs. Give it to people to do. You'll get better bang for your buck – doing something else.
0: Um, And I guess there are things in our advantage, right, like the TY point smelter coming off will increase electricity capacity instantly by a significant margin, right?
1: Yeah, about 15%, I think it makes, um, or uses. So the Commission's modelled a ramping up of building of wind and solar over the next few years. Then it's saying TY's going to close, so that electricity is suddenly available. So the price drops and we can avoid building more for a while until we've kind of mopped all that up and then we'll start building again. So TY will help the commissions, obviously projecting that the Huntley coal-fired power generation units are going to close as well. And so... Yeah, that does free things up. One of the the quite pointed comments in the analysis was about how much uncertainty, the uncertainty over TY is putting on our decarbonisation plans. Mm. You know, I was saying, this is a horrible paraphrase, but for the love of God, make a plan, give us a date, and then the electricity sector can plan Mm. around that.
0: That will cause a bit of consternation. You know, TY Point shutting down, Huntley shutting down, Mm. those are areas that need those jobs. And that will cause some social upheaval. Even I'm um, thinking, you know, if we're going to intensify wind farming, not everybody wants to live next door to a windmill. Mm. These will be decisions that will be difficult to grapple with, presumably.
1: Absolutely. Um, and there is uncertainty in how many jobs are going to be created on the other side. Mm. You know, how many people are going to work in biofuels? How many people can green hydrogen employ? one of the, the big calls is to immediately, hugely ramp up native forest planting on marginal land. Um, but, you know, planting trees on marginal land is hard yakker mm. and it's not immediately clear that someone who's employed at TYN Southland be okay, yeah. uh, You know is going to want to go plant trees on the East Cape. So a lot of planning needs to go into that. One thing to bear in mind is that not all, all of this is because of these carbon budgets. Indeed. So a lot of these these processes are in train anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, TY's probably going to close anyway. And that's what you f- see things on, like, uh, stock numbers and farms as well.
0: One of the most polarising recommendations in this report is that New Zealand reduce its national cattle and sheep numbers by about 15%.
1: So stock numbers are projected to fall anyway by maybe about 8% just based on other government policies and other trends, but that's going to rise to about 15% um, by kind of 2035-ish under this budget. So it's not that the direction of travel is necessarily different or shocking, but it's faster, and that means adapting faster. Adapting more Yeah. Good.
0: The elephant in the room, or the cow in the paddock, as it were, is livestock. While emissions from livestock are just a small part of most other countries' emissions, in New Zealand the opposite is true. The Commission advises a sort of sinking-lid-style policy about herd sizes, allowing them to naturally erode over time, reducing them by about 15%. However, this has caused a bit of consternation. Like it or not, we have lots of animals. They produce lots of food, both for us and for export – and our farming practices are pretty sophisticated when compared to the rest of the world. We're also at the forefront of developing and embracing new farming techniques to reduce environmental impacts.
1: They modelled the um, the milk and meat production and decided that it could be about the same by 2035 just from these management practices. Beyond that though, things get hard. Mm. So, you know, we could meet the lower end of our methane target for 2050 just with super amazing efficiency improvements and really, really good, you know, farm management. But methane needs to fall a bit more beyond Mm. that, and that's when you're going to need a vaccine or something or you're going to have to drop production. Mm. The consequences of climate change for agriculture are potentially some of the heaviest in the country. You know, if you think about who is going to be affected by drought, who is going to be affected by more intense floods who's going to be in te- affected by you know temperature changes or potentially crop diseases or hoof diseases that that change with changing temperatures the stakes for us getting this right are actually pretty high for agriculture as well mm. and i think that much like the rest of the country I think agriculture is kind of moving, you know, as businesses and as the general population is, people are moving towards thinking, okay, we do need to do this, but how do we do it? Mm. Probably the thing I hear most often is, you know, there are some outright deniers out there still, but more often what I hear is, okay, I don't mind doing this, but tell me what to do. (laughs) Like, what is the plan here? And I think that's probably how households and, you know, people in waning industries are going to feel as well.
0: But there may well be political challenges in implementing some of these ideas.
1: Things like petrol, you know, household bills. People like to perceive that they have choices and they are not being told what to do. There is some communication risk around the natural gas phase out in people's homes in that way. But also indirectly from industry. So, you know, if the hothouse that grows my tomatoes is using coal right now and they have to close or they have to switch at great expense, what is, can I no longer get my tomatoes in winter that I really want? You know, people like to feel that they can keep having all the things that they've had. So I do think that there are, you know, political risks to implementing it. On the other hand, I think... People have moved considerably since I don't know if you remember the energy efficient light bulb debacle under the Clark government. (laughs) Um, but you know, people were very ready to feel outraged about that. Um it was the low flow showers, wasn't it? It wasn't the light bulbs. (laughs) Showers again, it's always the showers. (laughs) I think what we've learned is that showers are very close to New People Zealand's People love heart. their showers, Do honestly. not mess with them. We're very clean. I just
0: want 12 showers in one day, and, uh, and I want that to be absolutely we're pumping a, into my skin. We're know. a clean nation, aren't we?
1: <laughs> um, so, you know, there's things like that. There are things that become symbolic despite probably actually not mattering that much hmm. in the scheme of the, you know, runaway catastrophic climate change that we're trying <laughs> to revert here. But... I do think there's risk to that, and I think a lot depends on how the opposition decides to play it and how that lands with the public. Mm-hmm. But I do think people have moved on considerably in the last, say, 10 years, and I think they're ready.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell and thanks to Stuff's Climate Change Editor, Aloise Gibson. Matewa.